The thick cloud called a piper cub's tail, the match struck blue. We got my mother's father. slipped on his wooden fish head. The mouth worked and snapped all the bees back to the bungalow. I cried like a buyer, Veterans Day Poppy. Hello and welcome to Track by Track Presents Trout Mask Replica. My name is Joel Bacher. I am guest hosting for Darren Husted. As we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his magic band's masterpiece 1969 double album Trout Mask Replica. Uh, today we are discussing the blimp parentheses mousetrap replica and parentheses. This is track twenty-five on the album. It is track five on side four. We are getting down to the wire on the record. Uh, this was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale, March nineteen sixty-nine. Produced by Frank Zappa. The personnel on this track is uh, absolutely unusual by the standards of this album because. Only two members of the actual Magic Band appear on this, and Van Vliet does not sing lead. Uh, the lead on this is a recitation by Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens, uh, with Don Van Vliet, uh, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart, providing a bit of saxophone uh, in the background near the end. And the actual band that is playing the music on this is the Mothers of Invention, Frank Zappa's band. Um, they are not all audible, but to give credit where credit is due, the band at this time was Jimmy Carl Black on drums, Ray Collins on vocals, Roy Estrada on bass and vocals, Bunk Gardner on tenor saxophone, Lowell George on rhythm guitar and vocals, Don Preston on the organ, Buzz Gardner on trumpet and flugelhorn, Motorhead Sherwood on baritone saxophone and something called snorks, which sounds like one of Zappa's jokes, uh, Art Tripp on drums, who would later join the Magic Band, as would Roy Estrada, as would Jimmy Carl Black, and Ian Underwood on alto saxophone. The instrumental piece over which this track is, over which the uh, narration is being recited, uh, was later issued on the CD issue of uh, Zappa's Weasels Ripped My Flesh, which was originally released August 10th, 1970. It was a piece called, uh, it was included in as part of Did You Get Any Anya? Um, according to interviews with Zappa, it was originally titled Charles Ives. Uh, the length of this track is two minutes and four seconds. Uh, my guest today is Jeff Economy. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, so Mr. Economy uh, was in uh, responsible for putting together the enhanced CD on the Grofins box set, which if anyone does not have it, is a really essential document for, for any beef heartologist. It, it uh, compiles a tremendous amount of, at that time, otherwise unavailable and uh, unreleased material, including instrumental rehearsal tapes from the Trout Mask Replica um, house, a uh, large number of live recordings. Uh, the Enhanced CD has some fantastic video. So if you if you don't have that and you're able to get it, I believe it's out of print, but uh, it's definitely worth keeping an eye out for. So um, obviously you've you've been pretty, uh, it, considering that you contributed to that, box set you're you're you've been pretty into beefheart uh what what was your first exposure to captain beefheart's music how did you first hear it well my first exposure was actually this track the blimp um that was the first thing that uh, that reached my ears as a teenager i listened a lot to uh the dr demento radio show are you familiar with that oh yeah so that was that was one of my i, I grew up in the suburbs of chicago and that was one of my lifeline salvations to 
a wider world that I, that I only had hints of the existence of at that time. And uh, I kind of obsessively made tapes off of what he would play on the show. And I made sure to tune in every Sunday night. And one night, I think it was uh, 78. I think it was 1978. Uh, Don Van Vliet was a guest on the show. And I didn't know who he was, but the fact that um, that uh, the doctor was so enthused about interviewing him made an impression on me. Like, oh, who is this guy? I'm, I guess I'm supposed to know who this is. And I and they had a conversation. And I think the first track that he played was was the blimp. And I remember going, what? Uh, what? <laughs> oh, what? What is it? Because it was just among other things, it was hilarious to me. Um, I, my ears were, were tuned at that point to anything that sounded different or unusual, or I didn't really, I didn't understand, or it was just funny. And that kind of checked all those boxes for me at age, uh, I guess I was 13 then. Um, so that intrigued me enough that I looked for a long time trying to find it. And it took me, since I, I, I don't think it really penetrated my brain, the name of the album. So I kept going into record stores looking for it, and I'd look in the Captain Beefheart bin, and I'd see Trout Mask Replica, but it didn't have the track listing on it. So I kept passing it over. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember how long it took me to finally find a copy that was open and go, oh, there it is. But that, that was my gateway drug. So if you, you were already listening to Dr. Demeno, you obviously had a taste for things that were a, a little off kilter and uh, uh, comedic or strange. And it's it's interesting the, the degree to which um, the role of renegade DJs and... and uh, proselytizing for Captain Beefheart. I've, I've talked to a few people in, in England who have talked about the role that John Peel had in making his music heard throughout England and constantly championing, 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 be nice if I could talk, uh, <laughs> his new records and um, Wolfman Jack on the West Coast being the person who kind of uh, broke um, their first single, Diddy Wah Diddy, and uh, um got them the 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 relatively small amount of of acclaim and popularity prior to safe as milk um, well, so but if you're just an aside there uh, he's also the the magic band was was on uh, american bandstand with diddy wad diddy back then were they really i did not know that yeah there's a clip if you look online we didn't know about it at the time or it hadn't resurfaced at the time we did grow fins but they're doing uh i th- uh I think it's Diddy Wad Diddy and Who Do You Think You're Fooling on a Beach. And uh, you can find that on YouTube. I am making a note of that. I'm going to see if I can include that in the the uh, track in the show data for this episode because that's that's fantastic. I've never seen that. Yeah, I, I must can look, find a link if you can't find it. He must look incredibly young. They they were they were still none of the mem- other than um, John French wasn't even in the band yet at that time, right. was he? Right. It, it was a totally different magic band from what play is playing on trout mask. Yeah, exactly. And, and he has that kind of young man, you know, he's wearing a vest. I think it's funny how there's, you know, two notorious clips of Beefheart, and they're both uh, playing on the beach. You know, that one. And also in can <laughs> a few years later. I don't oh know yeah. That's a fantastic. That's like a <laughs> that is funny that, that, that where do we set this unusual music? Oh, I know seaside. Um, <laughs> fish. Maybe there's a fish connection. We maybe that. Yeah. Okay. I can see the fish connection. That that makes some sense. Um, so the your your intro was was the blimp, and when you finally did, um, was Trout Mask the first Beefheart album that you ended up picking up? 
Um, it's funny. It's, it's actually hard for me to remember exactly. I mean, I, I think, I think at that point, the one that might've been easier to find was maybe dock at the radar station. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that was, was more accessible to me. Um, but, uh, but I definitely, um, by the time I did hear Trop mask replica, I found it so impenetrable as to be extremely off-putting <laughs> because at that, at that point in my life, I, I was having a hard time understanding, you know, wire or the talking heads. That was mm-hmm. enough far afield from what I understood to be music that, uh, it was around the same time that I had seen Sun Ra do spaces, the place on Saturday night live. And I, I remember staring at the screen going, I, I don't even know how this is music. <laughs> and I listen to that now and I think oh this is actually really accessible and fun I don't know why it was so difficult but it was so far from what I understood that I, I didn't know where to put it and also around the same time a friend and I had uh, had located a copy of Third Reich and Roll by, by the residents which was also one of those things that I think permanently rewired my brain so one may have helped prepare me for the other part of that whole continuum I was going to say that's that is quite a a deprogramming session to go through <laughs> Trout Mask and Third Reich and Roll. That 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 can that can change a man. <laughs> it, it definitely changed me. Uh, my wife is fond of saying in certain circumstances, "Oh, that changed my brain." And there are things I could point to that definitely did. And certainly, you know, hearing Third Reich and Roll did that, but also trying to decode Trout Mask did that to me. Because I just, I kept putting it on. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand what they were doing or how or why. And I put it on again and I get halfway through a side and go, nope, I'm not ready for this. And I just <laughs> I kept putting it on the shelf and come back, coming back to it every couple of months. Yeah, there, there's, there's two kinds, seems to be two kinds of people. There are those who are, are like, I don't understand this thing. And therefore I want nothing to do with it. Please get it away from me. And then there's, I don't understand this thing. I have to keep coming back to it. Because it fascinates me that I don't understand it, and the the latter type are tend to be the Beefheart fans. Because I, I I've talked to a couple of people in doing this who who say that they loved it the moment they heard it, but mm. most people the reaction is what the hell is this, <laughs> and then having to kind of repeat it until you get that moment where things click and suddenly it. I don't know if it, this album, album ever could be said to make sense, but you, <laughs> you, you get it and you hear it in a way that you didn't when you were initially confronted with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and you know, it's hard to say how, how anybody gets to a point where it makes sense to them. And it depends on, I think on which one you hear first and what your background is with this kind of music and, you know, whether you came into it cold, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, one of the things that really made Beefheart make sense to me was a few years later, I was visiting my uncle in South Dakota. He lived in the Black Hills and he had a, a car that had a CD player, which was very exotic at the time. Mm-hmm. He let me drive it and I was driving around the Black Hills and I thought, oh, I want to hear some music that I want to hear. And I didn't have any CDs with me. So I stopped at the first record store I found and it was all country music, but they had one little, one little niche that had a Captain Beefheart record in it which uh, I was like, how did this get here? And I bought it because I, somebody probably ordered it by mistake. And it was, um, it was a shiny beast bat chain puller and driving around nature, listening to that 
that was, I feel like the first time that Captain Beefheart's music actually made complete sense to me. And I, and Interesting. So did the, did the landscape ha- have something, some kind of connection to that, to, to being out there in the black Hills and, and hearing the music was the, the combination thereof kind of, uh, made it stand out in a way, or was it just the, the sound of, of shiny beast? Well, I think part of it was, be- I, I didn't know enough about Beefheart's history trying to understand the music at first. And I, it just struck me as very cacophonous and urban and angry and like lots of clashes and hard angles that seemed to me about conflict and, and dissonance and discord. And I think that was part of the resistance I had to it because I just didn't understand, you know, it's like that story of somebody asking John Coltrane, like, why are you playing such angry music? And he said, no, it's love music. And that was a, a really interesting idea when I finally heard that. And there was some, so there was something about playing this music in nature that harmonized, like somehow the even though I was in a car, <laughs> being being in this uh, this gorgeous natural environment and listening to it in that context, it it was in sync in a way that was completely surprising to me. Like I was still trying to understand it, and I went, "Oh, I feel like I actually do understand this on some level." And I didn't even know at that point what an environmentalist he was, and I didn't know anything about his painting or very little, but somehow Mm -hmm. that those things connected in a way that was not intentional or voluntary. It's, it's funny. I was just talking yesterday to, to Bret Hart, who also picked up shiny beast bat chain puller at a like mysterious out of the way record shop in the middle of nowhere. And so I'm starting, I'm starting to feel like there's the, there are these like little supernatural record shops that pop up. (laughs) <laughs> to to offer Beefheart albums for for people in need, but yeah, the the um the natural element of it one one thing that that keeps coming up on on different episodes as I discuss this album with people is is the idea that there's an organic feeling quality to his music. It it feels like, and I'm saying his music as shorthand. I'm I'm referring to right. to him and the band. Um, there's there's something that feels like a natural thing rather than a constructed thing mm-hmm. in his music to the point where Ben Waters compared uh, this out al- Trap Mask Replica as an album to an octopus, which I think is one of one of the more interesting comparisons I've heard for this I record. And yeah, uh, it, it's set and setting does make a huge difference when it comes to to music and and actually hearing the music i i read an interview with with michael stipe years ago where he he said he never really got the band suicide until he was in new york on a subway uh, <laughs> and then when he's riding the subway he's like oh i get it now <laughs> well there's nothing like riding the new york subway to make you want to commit suicide so. true <laughs> yeah if you end up in the wrong car it's rough I, I know for me personally, my maybe my my all time favorite band is the group Perubu. And oh, yeah. I, I absolutely did not understand their music at all until I lived in a city for a while because I had lived I live in San Diego, which is you know it, it's it's a city, but it doesn't it it doesn't have that same kind of urban intensity and energy as New York or San Francisco or one of those places. Yeah, um, I, I have family there, so I'm pretty familiar. Oh, okay. All right. Um, yeah, I, I spending a few months living in San Francisco, hearing the cable cars go past every night. It, it suddenly, and hearing the sirens off in the distance and the constant bustle and um, 
noise of people and and so forth going past the windows in this uh, kind of shitty apartment I was living in at the time. Suddenly, Perubu's music just stood out to me in, in stark relief, and I was like, "Oh, okay, it's like it's like folk music, but they're the landscape that they're presenting is is this kind of blasted urban environment." Yeah, and you know, it's funny because we're just talking about the, the the natural world and its relation to Beefheart, and Perubu to me is is still, especially those first records, so thoroughly urban. Mm-hmm. You know, the the all, even just the glass shattering in, you know, on on the on the modern dance, it's it's so much like you just walk down the wrong alley and oh, this is dangerous, and I'm not sure if I should run or back out or what's happening here. Yes, there's some crazy guy breaking bottles. So I don't know what I'm gonna do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They, I don't know if you know, but they have this uh, Patreon thing where you can watch videos every week where David Thomas is narrating things. If you haven't seen oh, it. Oh, I've been watching. Oh, okay, great. But back to Beefheart, um, yeah. who was pretty clearly an influence on Perry Boo, I think. Um, so the, the this track is, is on an album where every track could in some way, shape, or form be described as unique. This one really is a standout because it's not the Magic Band. It's... Jeff Cotton delivering this kind of uh, deranged sounding intense recital of one of Van Vliet's poems over music that is the mothers of invention. Right. Um, So the, the I, I guess the the beef heartness of it is in the is in the um, the poetry, but there's also something on this album that contains multitudes and is so constantly surprising you with what's coming next that to hit this song at you know three songs before the end, which quite literally sounds nothing like any of the other songs on the album (laughs) is just yet another curveball from, from a a continually surprising record. Um, Is this still, is this, is this track still one of the standouts on the album to you? Well, it it would always be that for me because it was so important in in reeling me in and and being the thing that hooked me. I mean, I, I don't think it has as many mysteries to reveal as, you know, some of the more complicated musical numbers, um, the more complex ones. But I also feel like there's something about this track that really is a key to like part of the heart of the Beefheart appeal, you know, because part of the story about this song or that some people have tried to claim that it's, that it's inspired by or somehow echoing that famous broadcast from WLS radio where, the Hindenburg is, is mooring mm-hmm. in New Jersey and explodes. And it's, and, and if you listen to it superficially, you can kind of hear that same kind of panicked urgency. But, you know, if you look at it, if you, if you listen to what John French says about it and saying, oh yeah, that's complete bullshit. And it's all about, you know, him singing about his dick, basically. <laughs> that actually, that actually makes sense. And there, and I think that's one of the secret keys to Beefheart's appeal is the sex appeal, which I, if you're at a certain point in your understanding of Beefheart, you might go, are you out of your mind? What sex appeal? It's like the most off-putting, difficult stuff. But there, but I think one of the things that gives it such power is it has this like physical, corporeal, like there's this oozing kind of, you could, you could 
poke it and it kind of gives a little bit, but it doesn't give too much, but it's like the way that if, you know, like pressing flesh, it, uh, you know, and, you know, even if you, you know, whether or not you believe that story about whether the, even the name Beefheart itself comes from, you know, what is it? His uncle, his uncle Alan right. claiming that, you know, oh, what a beauty, big, fine Beefheart, you know, exposing <laughs> himself to Don's girlfriend. It's, you know, there, there's some sexuality like in the, in the fundament of, of Beefheart's music. And I think this is one of the places where it kind of leaks out in this record. Leaks being an interesting choice of choice of word there. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's it's a very biological record to be sure. Yeah. There, there's uh, sex and sexuality and and carnality is throughout it. Um, in sometimes in kind of a sweet way, other times in kind of a, a off putting or 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 um, graphic way. I mean some of some of the the imagery on Neon Meat Dream of an Octopus or uh, Pina or even sweet, sweet bulbs, um, gets there. There's definitely a, a rawness and a, uh, a biological quality to, to his imagery and to his, um, to how he's presenting himself. And I know he, he always said that he made his music for women, which, Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't, I always, you know, you have to take everything he said with a grain of salt because there's, there's always an element of braggadocio and, um, uh, him liking to spin tall tales, um, but it certainly fits in also with the the tradition of the blues man singing of himself as kind of a lover man, right. and you know being the the guy who all the ladies are going to go crazy when he comes to town because he's the coolest dude. And you know, there's there are no shortage of of Beefheart songs that take that same tack from you know sure enough and yes I do down to. Uh, tropical hot dog night with the, you know, the young girls to come out and meet the monster tonight. Well, it also puts them in a, in a, in a continuum with so many other musicians who admit that they started playing the guitar to attract women. Even Robert Fripp admits it. And if you want to try to think of somebody who's about as cerebral as it gets for him to say, Oh yeah, we were just trying to meet girls. Well, yeah, it completely makes sense in that regard. I, I was thinking about that a couple of years ago, I went to see um, the group built to spill yeah. And, um, you know, people listening to this don't really have any idea what I look like. I'm, I'm middle-aged man. I'm bald, got a big shaggy beard, but, you know, <laughs> beer gut, just a, you know, pretty much, you know, quintessential music nerd look. Mm-hmm. And the lead singer and guitarist of built spill is bald guy at Doug March, brilliant singer, guitarist. He's, he's bald. He's got a big beard, a little bit of a gut. Um, and I was watching him play and I looked out into the audience because I was right kind of stage left um, at this venue in San Diego called the Casbah where you can kind of stand at the side of the stage. Yeah. yeah. And I looked out and basically the entirety of the audience just looked like me and him. It was just like (laughs) all like bald beardy dudes. Yeah. And I I just remember thinking on some level, he must be a little disappointed. Like, cause yeah, so many musicians pick up, their instrument guitar you know rock musicians are like uh, and men male rock musicians i should say male heterosexual rock musicians to to because there's certainly rockers on all manner of the spectrum but if we're talking straight dudes pick up the guitar there's some part of them that's going yeah i'm going to meet some girls doing this and then to end up with an audience who uh, i i have to say rapturous audience who absolutely were 
one of the most enthusiastic crowds I've ever seen at a rock show. They were just hanging on every song and erupting in applause with each new track that he would play. And they're a great live band. If once, you know, if live music ever starts up again, anyone listening to this, you're not, go ahead and go see Built to Spill because they're a fantastic live band. Um, but yeah, I do, I do have to wonder if there's a little part of them that looks out in that crowd and just goes, <sighs> <laughs> well you know maybe maybe in the back of his mind he's thinking well you know it worked so uh, maybe he's married and he met his wife there and he's like ah, now i can stop worrying about that i don't know true i, I think uh, yeah I think, I think at this point in history any musician who can actually make a living making music is probably grateful enough for that you know i i imagine that's probably true yeah and and i i would just like to for for any listeners I, i'm well aware that i'm just i'm purely talking about this from my own, you know, straight white dude perspective. So I, I apologize for that. That's, <laughs> it occurred to me, it occurred to me halfway through that I was cutting out an enormous amount of the population by making that generalization. So I apologize. Um, but the lyrically on, on the blimp, I can see both perspectives. I can see the, um, and yeah, what French said about that, it being ridiculous that it's about the Hindenburg and, mm-hmm his his quote is something like my image of this song personally uh make anyone what was really going on to make anyone rich in rock and roll had nothing to do with intellectuality and everything to do with sexuality the blimp of course being an ultimate symbol of male virility um whereas in mike barnes's book he uh says a spontaneous a spontaneous poem apparently based on the newsreel of the hindenburg airship crash um, Cotton's delivery certainly has the urgency of the the famous Hindenburg reporter. Um, I think it's interesting if we're talking about it as, as an image of male sexuality, there's a bunch of stuff in the poem where he's like relating it to breasts and motherhood. Right. Uh, the mothership, the mothership, tits, tits, the blimp, the blimp. Um, mm-hmm. m- children, stop your nursing. It, just like all these uh, very... Um, you know, fe- feminine imagery. And I, I gather, according to band members who, who were in, in the group at the time, you know, Beefheart would famously have these long talks, which were kind of these like psychological breakdown sessions that he'd have with the band. Yeah, yeah. And I guess one of the recurrent themes was like um, uh, the, the love of a mother and how it can smother you and, and, and destroy your creativity. And uh, I, it's, you know, I'm not going to, one could read all sorts of psychological issues into that, but clearly he had some issues with, with his mother and with motherhood. So this, the image of basically a giant breast, um, it is, seems to be partially in the song as well, but then also, and the girl's knees trembles and run and wave their hands and run their hands over the blimp, the blimp. Then of course we're dealing with something that is also very phallic. So it's this kind of weird protean sexual image that's both male and female and uh is drawing people to it and terrifies people and um it's it's a little bit of a piece with moonlight on vermont in that way because that's another song about uh that seems to be about some kind of bacchanal that's simultaneously liberating and terrifying which is also kind of like tropical hot dog night too if you want to throw it in there yeah, I mean, the, all the all the mother imagery is, is 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 so interesting because you know you hear these stories of people who knew him early on, and it sounds like he and his mother were very close, even though he seems to have some 
ambivalence about her. You know, when he describes like, you know, being in the, being in a, in a stroller and her almost pushing him out in the traffic and like, Oh, I, I knew I was smarter than her then, or however he described it, you know, but it also sounds from every account, like she absolutely adored him and enabled him to an absurd degree while his father was kind of absent, you know, there's, I, you know, I could see why there would be this sort of, you know, love, hate, resentment, need, you know, even down to, you know, not having children, but referring to his creativity as his baby. There's some sort of, there's just sort of like, like this mess, mess of maternal imagery that isn't really part of an organized system, but it's just sort of floating around, you know? Yeah. And I, I mean, one of the things he would say when discussing the polyrhythms and the you know the unexpected shifts in his music is that he wanted to to break people out of hearing that mama's heartbeat rhythm. Right, right. So that's that's just part of his his psychology and images of his mother um, show up on on later albums as well. With uh, when I see mommy, I feel like a mummy from Shiny right, Beast right. and um, Sue Egypt. Which if I had to make it like a top five of my favorite Beefheart tracks, Sue Egypt is up there. Cause that, that is a phenomenal piece of work from Doc at the radar station. Um, Absolutely. And then even then you've got the like old woman sweat, young, young, glisten. Yeah, young girl glisten. Yeah. So yeah, I mean the, the horny blues man is definitely a big part of, of uh, Van Vliet's musical persona and get gets, gets more play on some albums than others. I mean, Spotlight Kid and Clear Spot have have some very clear, um, raunchy boogie songs, all about all about the ladies. Well, and that stuff comes, you know. That's again, it's all out of that tradition of the blues. You know, if you trace back that that history and, and where so much of it originated, it's 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 so deep in the lineage. It's almost easy to forget, but it's just it's so fundamental. I mean, I I, I was actually surprised at some point in my life to learn that that women actually did find him, you know, attractive or the music attractive. Cause I remember I, I had an experience, I was working at a record store in the late eighties. And I remember uh, these two women who uh, the record store was in a pretty, it was on the North shore of Chicago, like a pretty affluent neighborhood. And one of them, the, these, these two, these two very well-dressed, very put together women are trying to find something to play. And one says, Oh, we have to get this this uh, Captain Beefheart record. And I was like, what? Are you serious? <laughs> and so I, I started listening closer. Like, what do they say? Oh, you really? Who is this guy? Oh, it's the worst music ever recorded. It's like, it's, it's like they just made everything up on the spot and some crazy person is singing and then they put it and I'm going, Oh God. Okay. This, this confirms every bias I thought that I had about, you know, women don't understand Beefheart. But then later, you know, discovering the GTOs and hearing, you know, the captain's fat Teresa shoes and, and then later I, I met um, Pamela DeBar while working on another project. I, I was working on a film oh, about cool. Cynthia Plastercaster. And uh, Pamela is, um, I mean, still just, if you talk to her today about Beefheart, I mean, she will just gush. Like he's as sexy to her as anybody she's ever met. Well, she certainly has a um, an important place in their, their lineage, considering that I believe it was her... Um, uh, with whom Van Fleet listened to the uh, Steve Reich piece come out, and she right. references that in her book. That and then that that shows up prominently on Moonlight and on Vermont. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, my my friend Allison um, is a Beefheart fan. She's guested on my my episodes on um, on Moonlight on Vermont and um, Hobo Changba. 
so yeah it's it's i i think the um i remember back in the on a, a message board uh beefheart message board i used to be on back in the late 90s the the um caveman days of the internet right. um where the there was this constant complaint of of the guys on the board like oh women never like never seem to like beefheart but mm-hmm. um i i, I don't necessarily for starters i don't think that was necessarily true then it's just based on a, a limited you know limited uh number of people that you're talking to here yeah. and um it's i i definitely don't think it's true now i know um amongst others poly pj harvey has, has talked frequently about what an influence uh van vliet's music was and has has explicitly referenced his songs and a couple of her songs meet meets a monster from to bring you my love is is a pretty clear riff on Beefheart, and from that on that song, she's singing from the perspective of like the the person get delivering the sexual come on. It's like she's the she's the one who is is uh, not the lover man in this case, but is the uh, you're you're coming out to you're coming out to meet her, and she's ready. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's that whole baby kangaroos album too. You know, mm-hmm. the, the Philly women covering Beefheart, which, I mean, if, if you needed anything to put the lie to that idea, that would do it right there. Do you, do you know that album that, that's all I- covers of Beef, Beefheart uh, stuff? Yeah, it's um, I I think it's called Baby Kangaroos. I'll I can find it offline and, and send you a link to it. I think it's probably on Bandcamp now. But it's all Philadelphia musicians, uh, women Philadelphia music, musicians covering Beefheart tracks, and it's some of the best covers that I've heard of his stuff for sure. Yeah, covers are interesting. I, I've talked to um a few several different people on this this show who have played his music either just for fun around the house or have actually been in in Beefheart cover bands or or what have you. And it seems like the two it's his personality is so strong and the music is so idiosyncratic that the two approaches seem to be either imitated as closely as you possibly can down to kind of trying to imitate his voice mm-hmm. or produce something that is clearly inspired by his track, but it's very different. Yeah. And that, and that approach is much more interesting to me than, than just a rote imitation Agreed, because then you can just listen to the original. Why would you want to hear a poor imitation? Yeah, I, I, you know, someone was complaining about that, complained to me about that with um, XTC's cover of Ella Guru. Like, well, it's really, it's really faithful, but what's the point? Yeah, that was uh, honestly, I, as much as I do love XTC, I kind of feel that way as well about yeah. their their version of it. As much, I mean, in all honesty, were I in their shoes and had the opportunity to do it. I do think it would be enormous fun to try and play it as close to the the original version as possible, but um, I, I'm not sure how much that translates to the listener enjoying what they're hearing. Yeah, yeah, and you wonder who that's even intended for, unless it's just, well, you know, we brought it on as a challenge to ourselves and we did it, and hey, that's cool. I mean, I, I guess that would make a lot more sense at a certain period where maybe uh, Beefheart wasn't... Uh, um, I was going to say not su- not such a prominent figure, but it's also easy to forget that you know he's still pretty well known 
in, in terms of outsider music. And for a lot of people, that's still their reference point for like the strangest music they've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it always it, it's remarkable to me that this album in England anyway, this album actually charted the that it's that something this strange. I mean, it didn't chart very high, but it charted, and that's mm-hmm. that's uh, endlessly fascinating to me. That something this um, initially off-putting to a large part of the listening public would have some degree of popularity. Um, so given that the band playing on this is actually the mothers um are are you also a zappa fan i am although i was i would think i was more of a zappa fan when i was younger i mean that was i was and it's probably you know it's worth mentioning that when i when i did hear beefheart for the first time i was all i was already you know a pretty good zappa fan that, that i was kind of limited to what i could find at that point uh, the mm-hmm. warner Brothers records were a lot easier to find you know you would find you know, sleep dirt in the cutout bins or whatever, but it was really hard to locate a copy of freak out or, or the early mother's records because they were just not around. So, um, you know, friends had, them. Um, it was really exciting to hear them. And that was the stuff that I heard on Dr. Demento, like let's make the water turn black was certainly one of those things that, uh, uh, initially got my attention, but I just remember Zappa being around a lot on the radio when I was growing up in a way that, um, it's kind of hard to imagine now, but I, but I, I look back at uh, like the fact that he did, he, you know, basically curated that cover story on life magazine. And he was like the friendly face of, of weirdo youth culture. Like somehow he was explaining what was going on to Mr. And Mrs. America. Um, he was like this, this, this freak show docent somehow. (laughs) So yeah, I, I definitely was. I was into Zappa. I, I went through a phase where I think some of the the condescension and some of the the, the stuff that feels a little angrier and uglier and curdled kind of got it, it wore on me after a while. And I, and I also just kind of moved on to other things. But um, I've been revisiting that a lot lately because just as an aside, I'm working with um, some people on a documentary about Tom Wilson. So I've had oh, to okay. go back to the to the to the zappa well a lot and rediscovering how much how enjoyable that stuff is yeah i i think i had the same kind of thing that you did zappa was definitely a gateway for me for a lot of other music um including beefheart and uh i had the same kind of turn off in regard to the more curdled is a really good way of putting it and the, the the nastier stuff that that he started producing over time that in, in terms of like just kind of misogynistic and uh, his anti-union stuff is just all, it, 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 it's a little, it's a little rough. Um, but in doing this project and listening to trout mask replica more than I had in, in some time, I'm, I kind of have an urge to revisit some of his earlier records because I hear things on this, album this song i mean being an, an obvious example but there there are aspects to this record that feel more zappa than van vliet like hmm. certain like putting the the use of uh, studio chatter in between hmm. songs or the little comedy bits or um like the inclusion of the guy the exterminator talking at the end of Dachau blues uh oh, right, right. that these feel like uh, zappa always would string his records together with, you know, bits of the band chattering with each other or, you know, weird little comedy bits. And 
Van Vliet does not really do that on any of the other Beefheart albums. And that method of constructing this record feels feels Zappa-esque to me. I don't know. To I may be reading too much into it, or I may be misinterpreting it, but um, it feels like he had his hand in there as the producer on this to some degree. I, I think that's true. I mean, I you know, obviously I wasn't there, but I, you're absolutely right. I, I just I never got the impression that that was part of Van Vliet's mo. That stuff was probably you know completely incidental to him, and it just doesn't show up anywhere else in a way that suggested that it was his idea. And it seems like, given that he was only kind of given the freedom to indulge in this two-record experiment because of you know to some degree Zappa's largesse, it makes sense that he would just sort of go, okay, okay, Frank, if you want to do that, like, you, I mean, it's pretty well documented that they had this on and off friendship that went back to high school. And sometimes they loved each other and sometimes they hated each other. And there's all these stories, but that, that, that push pull seems to be very much in evidence there. I mean, it's still ultimately Beefheart's thing and it's the magic band's thing, but I, I completely agree that there's definitely a touch of Zappa's hand there. That's not evident anywhere else. This particular track is as um, distressing as the poem that he's reading is. I find there's something very charming about this track to me, and it's the fact that the his Zappa's cue to Jeff Cotton, okay, go, at the beginning. You hear his cue, you hear Cotton reciting this poem, and then at the end there's this little back and forth where Cotton says something like, how was it? And Don says, and uh, Zappa says, it's beautiful, man. And then he says, I, I got to get back to work. It's yeah. just this, this little moment of, um, of camaraderie and also just the quotidian aspect of making a record that, that, you know, they had this poem, he called in Frank, someone had this idea of doing it over the mother's track. Um, Frank realized quickly, like, I think he says something like, I think there's enough there to use it as is on the album. So it's right. it's like you can hear this moment, this song being born, and also just the the kind of um, seemingly very very pleasant and respectful and uh, back and forth between these two guys. I I, I like that little glimpse into, um, and and Frank sounds very genuine when he says it's beautiful, man. Like he really enjoyed the juxtaposition of that that poem over that music, and it it just, he, he realized quickly like, Oh, okay. This fits perfectly. Yeah. And I also love in that exchange that the first time you hear Zappa, it's like, uh-huh, we got it. Or whatever it is he says, he sounds just like the unamused taskmaster, but then you mm-hmm. can immediately tell that he's amused. And I, and I remember, you know, working with Cynthia Plastercaster on that documentary when she went, when she and uh, Pamela DeBar were talking about Frank, the thing that they relished the most was saying, Oh, the thing you, you tried so hard to do was to crack Frank up. Like if you got him to laugh and beat his knee, that's like you felt like you just you've accomplished everything. I I have some friends like that where I feel like I have I, I've absolutely scored a goal when I can make them laugh. <laughs> like they're like right. they don't laugh easily, but when they do, you know they thought they really found it funny, and it's always a, a nice a, a little ego boost moment of like, all right, yeah, I made him laugh. <laughs> just, so like I can I can relate I can relate to that, and Zappa certainly did seem like he could be a rather stern figure at times. Yeah. I mean, we don't, we don't need to go down that road cause we could talk about that for an hour, but I, True. it's also, it's, you know, that's one of the things I like about this too, is that 
you know, we think about the stories, I mean, the stories I've heard anyway, and I'm sure you have as well about Don being near the end of his life and not communicating with everybody, but he would apparently call up Frank and just leave, you know, just put on records like old R&B records they listened to as teenagers and just leave that on Frank's answering machine, you know, just like a message to him. And knowing that they still had that kind of brotherly thing up to the end, even if it was still touchy and contentious, you know, this is one of those places where you hear just a, a hint of it. So just having that evidence, I mean, I've always been very attracted to any record that's got studio chatter on it. That's it's always so revealing. And I, and I love those exchanges. And I love the way John French talks about it in his book, you know, where he talks about like Don not wanting to have that whole exchange on there. And then, and then there's that exchange at the end of um, too much for my mirror you know, that he says that was, was Frank, um, uh, that, um, oh, the, the, the uh, shit, I don't know how I'm going to get that in there. The, right. But then also, yeah, the, uh, the whole thing of, yeah, exactly. For, for those listening, the, the, um, from what French, what French says in his book, if I'm remembering correctly, is that, uh, Van Vliet had extra lyrics to too much for my mirror that he simply ran out of the song ended and he, the clip of him saying shit, I don't know how I'm going to get that in there is him expressing some frustration that he had like all these extra words that he wanted to get in that he just wasn't going to be able to do. And he was a little annoyed with Zappa for including that on the record, but that the little bit at the end of the blimp when Zappa says, I have to get back to work now. Um, Van Vliet razzed him about that saying, uh, Oh, that's so, you know, like that's your, such your personality. You're always, you always have to work, work at everything. I never work at music. I play at music. And so it's like these, this little bit of these two guys kind of like brothers as that's a very good way of putting it kind of in a brotherly way, sort of giving each other shit in just in the, in the structure of the record. Yeah. It's, it's it just, it's stitched right in there, which I think is kind of beautiful. It is. It's a testament to the degree to which these two guys who, you know, had known each other since high school and had been kind of like the two kindred weirdos in their little desert town, you know, eating the leftover pineapple buns from <laughs> Don's dad's bakery truck, you know, yeah. listening to R and B records and that, um, Van Fleet probably wouldn't have gotten into music without Zappa's influence that Zappa's kind of said, yeah, I had to like push him to, to sing. Um, mm -hmm. he was too shy to do it otherwise, which it's, you know, when you see Van Vliet clips of him on stage, the word shy doesn't come to mind very much. He had this enormous right. personality, but, um, and of course this, this gift of voice, but yeah, I, it took some prodding to get him out there. Yeah. And, and I, it's one of my, what's one of my life regrets that I just didn't understand enough about him early enough to actually see him perform. I never, I never had that experience and I'll, always wish that I could go back. If I had a time machine, one of those things, like I would see some magic band performance at some point. Yeah. I, I missed out on that as well. Did you see the, um, the reunited or the, you know, French's kind of, um, I don't know what you'd call them. Like the, the, um, greatest hits magic band members. Right. The, the reconstituted, um, I did, I, they only played on the East coast once they played at the all tomorrow's parties festival. And um, it was right at the end when ATP was kind of falling apart and they had to move the show from one venue to another. And it was under this bridge under, under the, um, it was a bridge under the, uh, 
on the overpass, like on the seaport in Manhattan. So it was kind of a weird setup and they had some sound problems. So they only got to play like two thirds of their set. So that's the a whole, break. It was very, I could tell everyone was in French in particular was frustrated, but even that the band sounded great and I was thrilled to, to get to see them. But that was, that was the only time that I had the opportunity. I, I saw them at an all tomorrow's parties as well at the one in um, Long Beach okay. back in gosh, 2000. 2001 something like that and yeah that was the only that was the only live experience i i got with the magic band but that was the festival curated by matt graining um right is that when when harkle road was still performing with him no it was gary lucas um gary lucas denny wally um mark boston and and john french okay and they had another drummer come in for when when french would would sing right because right. I can't even imagine how difficult it would be to try and play the drums and sing that music at the same time. Um, uh, yeah, just playing it is enough. Yeah. <laughs> trying to manage the rest of it. So I think that we've pretty much covered... Uh, oh, I did. The one thing that perplexed me, continues to perplex me about the blimp is the um, its subtitle, Mousetrap Replica, in, in parentheses. Uh, I have no idea where that comes from. There's nothing referenced in the lyrics where that seems to make any sense. Um, you have any, th- you have any thoughts on that one? I don't want to mean to throw you onto the bus, but I was just thinking yeah, about that prior to the recording. I, like where did that come from? I, I, you know, I don't know if that was, um, you know, because he had such a high cotton's voice is so high that it sounded like a mouse to Don or something, or maybe to Frank. Okay, I can see that. I mean, it's really hard to say. I, 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 part of the thing I love about that, title in parentheses is it has this self-referential sort of like self-deflating aspect like in, in the midst of all of this this kind of uh, uh, monolithic we're going to throw not one not just two sides like a normal record but we're going to throw four sides of this at you like even in the title there's this little bit of 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 puncturing the puncturing the myth of the record itself before it's even done you know, that, that is always amused me. Like it seemed to, uh, kind of take the wind out of its own sail for just a second there. That's interesting. I never thought of it in that way, but I can absolutely see what you mean. Uh, I, one of the, the guests I was, I was talking to yesterday talked about this song as being like, you know, you've been through you're you're midway through the fourth side on the album, you're near the end. And this song is like a breather in that, it suddenly just something completely other than anything else you've heard on the record. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, I, I don't know that we've, we've hit on it quite enough. The um, cotton is the only magic band member to get uh, lead vocals to share lead vocals with Don on a, on an album. Um, he had other people singing backup on other records, but no one actually took the lead on a song other than Van Vliet and on this album, Cotton on, on Pina in this track. So something obviously appealed to Don about how Cotton interpreted his lyrics in this um, uh, kind of panicked cartoonish voice that, that he does on these two two tracks. But um, it, it's worth highlighting just what a, what a phenomenal job he does on this, this extended poem, delivering it in this, uh, in this frenetic cartoonish starting with the uh master master this is recorded through a fly's ear so he sounds like you know the hunchbacked assistant in 
um, any number of old fifties uh, or pre fifties horror movies and just rising in agitation to, to the end where he's, he's practically screaming out. It's the blimp, the blimp. It's, it's yeah. quite a vocal performance. It's really impressive. Well, there's also something to it that even, you know, if you know the whole story of, of how the, the record was made and living in that trout house and the mythology of how quickly it was allegedly written and recorded versus the reality. Um, there was, you know, as I'm sure you've covered on other episodes, so much apart from the psychodrama, just so much rehearsal and so much planning and, and, and French transcribing these piano pieces and making sense into them in a way that made sense to Don, like so much of it seemed very sort of like spontaneity then immediately trans transplanted into something that took a lot of work to get right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting that this is one place where that seemed like there was just a moment's inspiration of let's do this crazy thing in the studio right now and we have to do it. And this is what it is. Like why, why this piece and why that moment and why Charles eyes, was that just the first thing that was handy? You know what I mean? It's like, there's still something mysterious about how that came together that, that um, it doesn't appear like, like we've said, it doesn't appear that way anywhere else in the record, but it also seems some sort of skeleton key to the combination of, of inspiration and spontaneity. That, um, it, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. <laughs> it's, it's fitting that the, the mother's track was called Charles Ives, given that Ives as a composer would frequently do, do these works where he would just, he would combine two completely separate pieces and usually fairly well-known like i believe hymns or things like that and then have them played simultaneously so you get these moment these this weird dissonance and um uh you know things polyrhythms and things stepping over each other and crashing together and the fact that this is a spontaneous that this is a poem being read out over a unrelated musical cue seems mm-hmm. like I don't know if that was intentional or not that he used a piece that was named after Charles Ives or just, just another one of those weird bits of, of um, uh, spontaneous similitude to use right, Zappa's right. terminology. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think that pretty much, uh, pretty much does it. Um, Darren always rates the tracks. As I have said on every episode, I rate every track on this album five out of five because I don't believe that you can really fairly compare them to anything else. There are certainly some I like more than others, but I think each each one is a, a singular entity on this singular album. Um, if you would like to rate the track out of five, you are, are welcome to do so. And if you have anything you would like to uh, plug or anything that you'd like to signal boost, uh, Mr. Economy, the floor is yours. Well, it's it's one of those things that's become so much of a part of my DNA. This record that I, I I've lost all objectivity about whether it's great or not because it's it's so close to my heart. So I I don't think I could rate it anything but a five, even just this track. Whether it seems in some opinion maybe to be a throwaway, it it, it to me is just as important and fundamental to this record as anything. So I'm going I'm going with the five. Um, as, as far as anything of my own, I think uh, um, I think the one thing I'll mention is that I, I, I host a twice monthly radio show on WGXC 90.7 FM in upstate New York in the Hudson Valley. And it's called the show is called Snack Point Charlie. And I play a lot of uh, international music, some experimental stuff. I do some on air experiments and uh, it has a free form aspect to it. And uh, if you want to know more about that, 
uh, snackpointcharlie.tumblr.com. You'll find all the links and playlists there if you're curious. Nice. And as for those of us who are not in that region, is that something that we can listen to online? Yeah, it's uh, it, it goes out live the first and third Wednesday of every month. But after that, it can be downloaded at any time as a podcast. Excellent. Uh, for those who would like to follow Track by Track on Twitter, Twitter? I'm not sure what Twitter is, but if you want to follow it on Twitter, <laughs> it's at underscore Track by Track. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Joel A. Bakker. That's B-A-K-K-E-R. I don't tweet much because Twitter's horrible. Um, I go by the same handle on Instagram. If you want to follow me there, I post pictures of my cat, which is far superior to most of the conversations you'll run into on Twitter. And um, I believe that sums it up. So, uh, Mr. Economy, Jeff Economy, thank you so much again for being my guest today. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. And thank you for listening. Hello. Sure did. That's beautiful. I think that we have enough on the tape to uh, just use that as is for the album. Okay, I'm going to listen to it back now. i got to go back to work.